0: Speed up with podcast. Speed up. Rationally speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I am your host, Massimo Pigliucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Galef. Julia, what are we going to talk about today?
1: Massimo, today we're going to talk about the thought experiment, the process of constructing an imaginary situation to help shed light on uh, how things really are. It's an indispensable tool in the philosopher's toolbox, and it's even got a long history in science as well. But while some thought experiments help clarify an issue, Others are totally worthless and can even be misleading. So I'd like to talk about some examples of thought experiments in science and philosophy, and ask what are they good for, and what distinguishes a valid thought experiment from an invalid one.
0: Good question. By the way, before we go ahead, I'd like to say that the what you just said about thought experiments, which is that some of them are, you know, uh, interesting and, and bring up interesting you know conclusions or points, and other on the other hand are misleading or, or downright uh, wrong. Mm-hmm. Pretty much that applies to real experiments as well, right? Yeah, I and mean, sure. <laughs> I mean, in fact, it would be kind of interesting to figure out whether it applies to real experiments for similar reasons, or is it because of a completely different um, structure of the two?
1: I, I actually think uh, there are some similarities in the way that real experiments and thought experiments can fail, but let's, let, let's leave that as a, as a bit of a teaser and, and get to that in a bit. Um, for starters, maybe we should talk about the more successful thought experiments, because there have been some, some, pretty, um, some pretty illuminating thought experiments that have been used uh, you brought up a uh, one of my favorites in the teaser for this episode, uh, which was Galileo's thought experiment showing that um, objects of different mass will fall at the same rate.
0: Right. So Galileo was faced, of course, with with Aristotelian physics, and uh, according to Aristotle, um, you know, he, bodies would fall at a different uh, at a different speed depending on the, on the mass. And uh, we know today that that is false. And the first one to point out. Uh, that that was the case was Galileo, and the interesting thing is that Galileo didn't do it by actually doing any experiment. I, I know that the mythology is that he actually went on the Leaning Tower of Pisa and dropped uh, weights of different, uh, you know, uh, bodies of different mass and all that. He never did that. Right, but
1: this is even cooler.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. This is even better because he figured the whole thing just by thinking about it, and then uh, many many years later, uh, during the Apollo fifteen mission on the moon. Uh, the experiment was actually done uh, in front of uh, cameras and broadcast throughout the world. And sure enough, it turns out that Galileo was in fact right. Um, and of course, the reason they did it on the moon is because there is no friction. And so there, you don't have to deal with, with the um, interfering effects of, uh, of the atmosphere. But essentially, Galileo thought uh, m- uh, in, in this way. He said, well, look, there's, there's, suppose that there are two bodies. Uh, one is heavy, the other one is, is uh, you know, light. And uh, according to Aristotle, they should fall down at different, at different speeds. Now, what happens if you join them? Uh, somehow with a you know with a cord or something. Uh, now, from an Aristotelian perspective, you could think about the the combined body in two different ways. On the one hand, you could say, well, the combined body is now heavier because it's got the heavy body plus the light body, so it should fall it should fall faster. On the other hand, by the same Aristotelian logic, it's also true that the light body is going to drag. Um, you know, slowly, more slowly, the heavy body. So it should be actually slowing it down. If you put the two things together, you get a contradiction. Right. And if you get a contradiction, Galileo reason, then, then that can't be true. And as a bonus, he got the real, um, by ad by absurdum, by, by pushing the argument to the, to the extreme limit, he got the right answer, which is that the two bodies will fall in fact at the same, at the same rate. Now, the reason this is a particularly successful example of a thought experiment is because it's one of those instances where we really did gain knowledge about the universe, empirical knowledge about the universe, by just thinking about it. Because if you think about it, the Galileo's conclusion is not a, a matter of logical necessity. You know, if the law of gravitation were different, things would be working differently. And he did not have any data. Uh, you know, he just made up the, the hypothetical situation. It's not that he, he started out with empirical data. So this is a great uh, example where starting out with no, with no data and using simply uh, intuition and logical reasoning, the guy came up with something entirely new, which we still know today, 400 plus years later, to be true.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's one of the most exciting kinds of thought experiment, where your conclusion is is a, a new and accurate fact about the external world. Um, but there there are other kinds of of totally valid thought experiments that. Uh, have a different purpose, I would say, especially uh, the kind used in philosophy. And there, I think the purpose is more along the lines of um, helping us clarify what we actually believe. So uh, for example, pointing to inconsistencies in uh, multiple things that we think we believe simultaneously. So um, for example, if I think that I believe that Um, there's a moral obligation to save someone's life if it would be at small cost to myself, and I also believe that I'm not doing uh, a moral wrong by not giving away a lot of my income to charity, Um, then a thought experiment uh, such as the sort promoted by Peter Singer could um, highlight that inconsistency and and encourage me to resolve it in one direction or another.
0: That's right. So the experiments, for experiments like the trolley dilemma in uh, in uh, philosophy, in, in ethical philosophy, are interesting not because they want to. The, the, their point is not to prove a particular position, but is to explore how uh, you know what what are the in, the assumptions that are embedded into our reasoning. Uh, the trolley dilemma, as uh, most of our listeners probably know about, is the situation where. Um, a trolley is going down the tracks and it's out of control and you have a chance to save five people that are about to be hit by the trolley if you pull a lever. But if you pull the lever, uh, you're going to hit another innocent person on a different track. Now, when posed in front of that kind of situation, most people would say that, yes, they would pull the lever. Mm -hmm. But when you present them with a different situation, uh, that uh, that it's only formally different, at least from an ethical perspective, which is instead of pulling the lever, they would actually have to push somebody in front of the tracks to block the trolley, most people say that they wouldn't do it. And the two situations are, from an ethical perspective, identical, because in both cases, you're saving five people and you're killing one. But the different reaction most people have highlights the fact that there is an important emotional component to our ethical reasoning, because the, the, the only difference there is that instead of doing this rather impersonal thing or pulling a lever, you're actually doing the very personal thing or pushing somebody.
1: Right. And I, I actually wanted to talk about this thought experiment because I think it highlights a potential danger with thought experiments, Um, and that's that uh, they can tempt you to specify conditions in your experiment that would never actually occur in the real world, and so uh, it's not clear to me that you can trust the conclusions that the experiment with its imaginary hypothetical uh, conditions leads you to, so... Uh, for example, um, the the thought experiment specifies that um, when you push this man, they they always say it's a fat man because um, because a lot of people try to say, well, wh- why don't I just jump on the tracks to save the the kids? And so the question says, oh no no no, you 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 wouldn't have enough mass, so you have to push this fat man. That's the only way to save the kids. And if you push this guy, then that will definitely kill him, and it'll definitely save the kids. But but the problem is, in real life, you you could never be sure of that. You you could be confident that. Um, pushing the man would kill him and would stop the train. Um, But you can't be a hundred percent certain. And so I think there's a reasonable case to be made that that sliver of doubt about what could actually happen is enough to justify staying out of it. You could push the man and the train could kill him and still go on to kill the kids. And so um, there's some wiggle room there. And I think this, this is also the problem with a, a much more common and, a weighty thought experiment cited in politics which is the ticking time bomb scenario right. which people bring up when they're they're arguing um that torture is sometimes justifiable and they say well if you knew that torturing this one uh this one captive was the only way to find out the location of a bomb that was going to go off soon and kill thousands of innocent civilians then well then is is torture still wrong and and phrase like that it is a tricky question but but right. I think one of the best arguments against the, that thought experiment is that in real life, you never know that torturing the man will definitely save those people's lives. And so, again, maybe that bit of doubt is enough to justify refraining from torture.
0: I, I'm gonna, I think that's a very good point, but I'm going to slightly disagree um, with, with your take on this. And I'm going to try to make a distinction. Um, I think that the point of those thought experiments, such as the Trolley Dilemma, is in fact to explore people's intuitions uh, or people's reasoning or people's assumptions about say moral reasoning it's not to actually predict what people would do in in practice just like um you know the actual the, the thought experiment in galileo did the point of that one wasn't to predict what would actually happen if you did drop two different uh, uh you know bodies of different mass from the tower of pisa in fact had he actually done that experiment it probably would have failed because of the interference of uh, of air which would cause friction on the bodies so in other words those kind of thought experiments in which you're referring to these you know simplifying assumptions and very strict conditions that's now different from in a thought experiment in physics and in fact um a lot of you know physics even even at uh, sort of a basic introductory level we study physics and we talk about frictionless surfaces or or or, or you know or, or things that are ideal an ideal gas or things like that well i Ideal gases don't exist, and frictionless surfaces don't exist either. But the reason those experiments work is not because they predicted the behavior of actual surfaces or bodies or gases. is because they lead you to think about how under controlled conditions those things would actually work. So I think that the, the situation is analogous in the case of our experiment. Now, let me get to your example of the ticking bomb scenario, because I, I think that one draws out a distinction that is important there. If the question were really purely a matter of what our moral intuitions are, as opposed to being a question of actual policy, I think that question is a valid question. You know, what, what do you think? If, if, if you were faced with that sort of situation, what would you do? The trick is that, of course, as soon as you answer that question, say, well, okay, maybe under those, uh, those very special conditions, I think that it would be justifiable to do whatever is possible to save, you know, a million people or something like that. As soon as you admit that, in response to a thought experiment for an ideal situation, the, uh, the 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 person that typically prompts you with that kind of question draws the conclusion that therefore it is acceptable policy to um, uh, to uh, conduct uh, you know engage in in, uh, in torture in actual real situations. But that wasn't the situation that is covered by the thought experiment. There is a very important distinction between. You know, trying to probe somebody's, and push to the limit somebody's uh, moral intuitions, and it's a completely different thing to use those moral intuitions to say, well, therefore, in an actual policy matter under real conditions, here's what, com- what, what I'm going to do. That's, that's, I think, a very different situation. It would be very much like a scientist who works on the theory of, of ideal gases to try to, to use that theory to predict the non-equilibrium thermodynamics. It wouldn't work.
1: Sure, and that's a very good practical reason to avoid actually using these thought experiments um, in, in policy decisions. Yes. I just meant mentioned- that if uh, the conclusion that someone's uh, gut reaction is irrational or contradictory in those cases may not be justified because their gut reaction may be based on the fact that in real life they would they it would be better to refrain just because you can't have absolute certainty. That's that's all I meant. Um, and uh, we should we should also probably talk about uh, two of the other big problems that can arise in in thought experiments, which is uh, I would say first um, the problem that they can fool us into thinking that. Just because we can conceive of something, then it must be possible. And second, that just because we can't conceive of something, then it must not be possible. Right. Um, and you gave a good example of of the latter um, in the it was either in the teaser or in a, an article that you wrote for Philosophy Magazine. Um, but about the um, I think it was Lucretius who who right. argued that the universe must be infinite because um, if you Threw a spear at the border, the boundary of the universe, and it went through. Well, then it couldn't be the end of the universe. And if it bounced off, then there must be something on the other side of the
0: because there is a boundary, boundary between right. you and something else. That's right. That's actually apparently the earliest recorded thought experiment. <laughs> uh, and, uh, it's a
1: sporting effort, <laughs>
0: right? And it's a great uh, no. It's a great example because you're, you're right. It, it does reach a conclusion that it turns out to be wrong. Because today we we think modern physics thinks that the universe can both be, uh, you know, bounded and infinite. You know, just think of a toroid for instance, or even mm-hmm. in, uh, in one dimension, in two dimensions, just of a circle. Obviously, that's a, surface, that, that's a figure that is, doesn't have an end, and yet it is, in fact, uh, you know, confined to a particular, it's bounded. Uh, so, Lucretius was definitely wrong. Uh, but it's, it's an interesting experiment, both, both in terms of sort of historical importance, and also because it started out a tradition of other thought experiments that eventually went wrong, including in physics. I mean, Newton, uh, for instance, made a, uh, proposed a famous uh, experiment uh, involved in buckets and rotating spheres and things like that to show the space is absolute well it turns out he was wrong Anyhow, <laughs> and he was newton it wasn't exactly the the you know uh, somebody who didn't know anything about physics um einstein on the other hand proposed this famous thought experiment about uh what would happen if we if we were to uh travel you know try to catch up with a light wave, mm-hmm. and. Um, that showed that, in fact, uh, that was essentially the beginning, the foundations of of the basic idea of relativity, uh, showing that, uh, in fact, in the the frame of reference in in which the observer would find itself uh, would be in accordance to a relativistic view of the universe and not to a Newtonian uh, view of the universe. So, again, we're bringing uh, examples where thought experiments worked and examples where they didn't work. Um, But so far, I think it seems to me fair to say that that's true also for actual experiments. And... um, and you know a thought experiment it is an interesting question to ask what kind of thing a thought experiment is and there, there are several theories in philosophy of science about thought experiments and where they come from uh, two that are kind of opposite extremes uh, and are worth considering because they, they sort of encompass the whole the whole spectrum are due to James Robert Brown on the one hand and to John Norton on the other hand so according to James Robert Brown uh, a thought experiment is essentially a a um, way in which we perceive a platonic reality. And by platonic reality it means uh that the that the the laws of the universe as well as mathematical constructs such as numbers are really out there independently of the human mind. Meaning that when we when we do when we think about mathematics and fundamental physics, we actually discover things, we don't invent them. Now, we could do a whole separate show about Platonism, especially Platonism in mathematics because it's a really interesting um, situation. But it sounds like a bizarre notion until you start thinking about the experiment that we started with. Galileo's um, uh, figuring out something about the real world without new data and, and, you know, and without no, and actually no actual experiment. That's an interesting example because what, what was he get, where was he getting those ideas from? If, if, the, if in some sense the answer wasn't already out there, it simply it certainly didn't make it up. It's not something, it's not a construct of Galileo's mind. It's something he discovered. It was out there. It's It's an actual structure characteristic of the physical world. So how did he discover it? By not having any empirical. Well, he realized
1: needs. it. I mean, we we frequently we have a lot of information rattling around in our minds, and frequently there are logical dependencies between different statements, but we don't realize it until we think hard about it. I don't see how that's as, that's as mystical as some philosophers seem to think it is.
0: No, I, I don't think this has anything to do with mysticism. But uh, but oh, your I mean, objection, surprising or weird, <laughs> right? But your object, objection goes, in fact, in favor of the other view, uh, the one by uh, John Norton. John Norton thinks of experiments as if is a, as a kind of if then reasoning. So he thinks of, exp- of thought experiments as something that starts out with certain implicit or explicit empirical premises, which we get from previous ob- observation or experience, and then we construct a, a set of if-then situations where we explore by deductive reasoning what follows from those premises. Uh, I, I, I assume that that's a more palatable uh, view of, of uh, what thought experiments are. And yeah, if yeah. you think about it, it is very similar, uh, at least in my opinion, to the way in which a very different kind of activity works in science, and, and I'm referring to computer simulations, mm-hmm. right? So a computer simulation is something that, in, in, in a, um, a qualitative fashion, really works a lot like a thought experiment of the if-then type that Norton is talking about. Because in a computer simulation, you start out with certain premises, uh, that you use to build in to build the program or whatever it is you 're simulating, those premises typically come from from uh, knowledge that is external to the simulation itself is not generated by the simulation, so those are premises that may come out of you know knowledge of the laws of physics or or certain assumptions about economics or empirical data or whatever and then what you do is you write a computer program. That is essentially a set of if-then uh, statements and feedback loop- loops that, by deductive reasoning, quantitative deductive reasoning, draws out the consequences of those assumptions. Right? A computer simulation doesn't produce new data. I mean, it's true that we often call uh, call the output of a computer simulation mm-hmm. data, but the data in a very different sense than the empirical information that we had about from real experiments about the real world. Right? These are data that are actually generated. By the, sim- by the simulation, and they are a logical and, in fact, necessary consequence of the premises of that simulation. So the idea is the same in thought in experiments, according to Norton, that what, what we do is very much like a qualitative simulation in our mind. We start out with certain premises, and, and then we build a certain kind of deductive reasoning. And of course, just like in a computer simulation, there are fundamentally two things that can go wrong with a thought experiment. Either the premises can, go, can be wrong, so the reasoning can be perfectly fine, but you start out with wrong um, premises. And of course, as anybody that has taken Logic 101 knows, if you, if you, if you use deductive reasoning starting out with wrong premises, the conclusion cannot, does not, in fact, follow. Or vice versa, you can start with the correct premises or a set of correct premises, and then you can make a mistake in the actual reasoning, uh, which would be the equivalent of making a mistake in the programming of the simulation, in which case, of course, also you cannot trust the output, but in this case, you cannot trust the output for a very different reason. So if if you want to take issue with the results of a thought experiment, you would go about the same way in which you you go about if you want to take issues with the results of a computer simulation. You either question the premises or you question the actual program.
1: I like it. It's a. It's not quite as charming as chucking a spear at the edge of the universe, but it, it sounds a lot no. more precise. Um, I, I wanted to make sure to, to bring up a comment um, from a reader of our blog that I thought was particularly perceptive. Um, it has to do with the... Uh, One of the earlier ways that I I mentioned thought experiments can go awry in which they fool us into thinking that just because we can conceive of something that it must therefore be possible. So uh, commenter JP says, it seems to me that most of the time when we believe we can conceive of something, we're simply fooling ourselves. We have an image of an object or a scene in which we can use the term in a seemingly meaningful manner, but in fact, we have no precise idea at all of what we're talking about so assuming we can conceive of something doesn't seem to amount to much and i think i I totally agree with this and i think a a great and a common example that we've (laughs) brought up in previous episodes is the philosophical zombie the idea that we can imagine uh, a creature who's uh an automaton whose brain processes or whose robot brain processes information from the world exactly the way ours does and who walks acts and behaves the way we do but is not at all conscious and um, as I believe you and plenty of other smart people have pointed out this, this might just be fundamentally inconsistent. So even though we think we can imagine it, it, doesn't, it might not actually make any sense. And in oh, fact, I think, I think we actually, we may not be conceiving of things when we think we're conceiving of them. Like I actually think we can, our brains can fool us into thinking that we're imagining something. So like I could even something as stark as a square circle I feel like a lot of people could say, oh, I can sort of imagine that. But maybe what they're imagining is just a circle with like the word square floating around in their mind, you know, and that's right. not actually imagining it because it's it's logically impossible. Right.
0: Now, as you pointed out, I I, I don't have a particular high opinion of the, the zombie uh, thought experiment in uh, philosophy of mind, which is due to David Chalmers. On the other hand, there are, in fact, some interesting thought experiments even in science that are about conceivability mm-hmm. so whatever uh, fundamental physicists for instance talk about what the universe would look like if the if the physical constants were slightly different from what they are which is a typical uh, way of reasoning about the foundational uh, you know foundational physics well that's perfectly legitimate so the, the question that arises in this case is one that has been discussed recently in philosophy science which is the relationship between conceivability and possibility you know, it, they're not exactly the same thing. Clearly, we can conceive of, th- of things that are actually not possible, mm-hmm. but of course, we can conceive of things that are possible, and, these, and, and we shouldn't limit ourselves to not, you know, not doing that. Um, but we, but we need to be careful about what we draw out of, of the uh, as a conclusion out of these experiments. thought experiments, let me give you an example from philosophy, which I thought it was very amusing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it 's exactly one of these situations where it, it, the conclusion of the experiment hinges on the on, on conceivability and here' is two major philosophers who have very different ideas about what 's conceivable so uh, Frank Jackson famously proposed this experiment uh, these thought experiments to show in his opinion that there must be something wrong with physicalism. Physicalism is the idea that m- the mind and consciousness and uh, uh, reduce only to physical characteristics mm-hmm. right. And uh, so he said, OK, imagine that that there's this woman named Mary who grew up in an environment, an experimental environment that is on purpose. It's it's kept black and white or, you know, shades of gray. There's no colors anywhere to be seen. Mm -hmm. So she has never had an experience of color throughout growing up. She has been told about color by science, the scientists who are running the experiments. And it's it's obviously the scientists in this case would be engaging in something in a very unethical behavior. But nevertheless, it's a thought like, experiment. We can do anything experiment. we want. <laughs> no
1: human subject committees to bother
0: us. You cannot go to jail for a thought experiment, right. I suppose. Um, but so so the idea that Jackson put forth was that, well, look, then Suppose that somebody then at some point opens the, the, the door and, and Mary steps, steps out of the, of the confines of the experiment and for the first time experiences color, she would have no idea of, uh, you know, what to expect. In other words, the the experience would be very different from whatever she possibly have lear- has learned about color, uh, which shows that there must be something more than just the physical descriptions and physical understandings of, of color. Okay, I, I don't buy that, ex- that even at that point, but let's assume that you buy that there is something f- f- funny, in fact, about this situation. Mm-hmm. Well, Daniel Dennett, another philosopher of mine, uh, responded in this way. He said that this thought experiment, uh, in fact, he, he, pro- he proposed a counter experiment that starts out just like Jackson's. But then when Mary leaves the lab, she says, ah, color perception is just as I thought it would be. In other words, in other words, the physical description given to her by scientists uh, prepared the exact, her exactly for the the actual, uh, you know, sensorial experience. And what you take, what you get out of this experiment is based on your assumptions. Do you think that a physical description of a particular kind of experience is the same as, or is as good as, the actual experience, or not? Depending on what, you're, on how you conceive of the relationship between physical experience and knowledge about the physical experience, you draw completely different results from the experiment.
1: Yeah, you've made this point before, and I, I thought it was very well taken. Um, and I think the the original thought experiment illustrates another big danger of thought experiments, which is just that if you tell a convincing and believable enough story, then you know you can. It's, it's very easy to accept the conclusion without questioning the logic of the thought experiment itself. Right. Unless you have um, somebody
0: smart like Dennett who actually comes up with a counter thought experiment. Sure. I mean, that's the <laughs> That's the whole point, right? Of, of these things. You put them out there so that people can actually look at the assumptions and the reasoning and, and point out where the flaw um, is.
1: Sure. And there are so many that, thought experiments that we're not getting a chance to bring up, but, uh, but I understand that you have a few more waiting for us in the picks. So let's hurry up and move on to the Rationally Speaking Picks.
0: Welcome back. Every episode, Julie and I pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, websites, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. Let's start with Julia's picks.
1: Thanks, Massimo. My pick is a book called 50 Great Myths of Popular Psychology. Um, I've been enjoying this book a lot because I, I think, um, like many people, uh, I'm I'm very vulnerable to um, urban legends and and spurious uh, uh, citation or spurious um uh, anecdotes from the world of popular psychology, just because they make such good sound soundbites um, that I often don't put in the hard work of actually like checking them the way I, I should, because they sound so good and they make for such good retelling. Um, but so, you know, uh, some of the myths in this book I, I was well aware were myths, but others I um, actually believed to be true, or at the very least had heard and had not uh, rejected out of hand when I'd heard them. Um, so, for example, uh, I thought it was quite plausible that, um, just as I'd always heard, uh, expressing your anger or aggression will help dissipate it, and that you 'll then become less angry, um, but apparently this is really not the case uh, for more than forty years. Apparently, studies have been showing that encouraging the expression of anger actually increases your aggression so One uh, study right. showing this uh, had people pound nails um, and do various other uh, activities to to express their aggression after someone had insulted them, and then found that the people who had done that uh, were actually more angry later on when, when measured in a follow-up. Um, so that, that's, that's one of the other uh, fun things about this book, is just reading about all the clever experiments that, uh, that researchers divide to, to test these uh, popular beliefs, popularly believed myths. Um, and it's also striking to realize how many of these um statistics and studies that i'd heard about that keep sort of rattling around the popular psyche are actually completely false or fabricated like for example the the study which you probably heard about i've heard about it a million times in which um showing the power of subliminal advertising um oh, yes. so this this guy um in a series of movie theaters in i think new jersey had uh, subliminal messages flashing ads for Coca Cola and for popcorn um, in movie theaters, and the result was that sales of Coke and popcorn skyrocketed during the six weeks that this experiment was going on. Turns out the guy made it all up, <laughs> but it's just like become permanently embedded in in our collective psyche. Um,
0: the story's too good to be true.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so, so you think
0: that, in, in, to some extent, the um, the problem here is that a lot of pop psychology and self-help books and all that sort of stuff, they're not actually based on psychological research, which is out there because a lot of people actually look into these things. They're just based on intuitions, right? Somebody's just started out and saying, well, it makes sense to me that we should you know, deal with this way with anger. And so it starts out writing books about how to deal with anger without actually bothering to check in the, the literature. I mean, one of the things that uh, struck me um, some time ago as, as really interesting is that there is actually research looking into different kind of talk therapy. And how effective they are on the long term to change people's behavior. And it turns out that the only one that we know empirically is effective is cognitive behavioral therapy. Right. Now, the interesting thing to me was that then therapists were told this, and for the large part, they completely ignore it, uh, responding that, well, but I know that it works because I see it working on my. On my clients, thereby entirely missing the point of a controlled experiment in, in science. And, and this is, this actually does harm to people. At least you're wasting your money um, <laughs> if, you, if you keep going to a therapist who refuses to take into consideration empirical evidence.
1: Right. And and for example, one of the myths that has persisted is that people who are sexually abused as children uh, are all or almost to a one um, suffer from severe uh, psychological problems as adults. And certainly some of them do, um, but the statistics are much weaker than you would actually have thought. And so just as you said, when when psych uh, psychologists and therapists were told this. They insisted that it didn't match what they saw in their practice. But of course, the only people they see in their practices are the ones who have psychological problems. So, yes. you know, it's, not a, it's exactly, a non-random sample. Right, exactly. What's your pick, Massimo?
0: So my pick is John Norton's uh, website, and in particular, a subset of it called Goodies. John Norton is a philosopher at the University of Pittsburgh, and we'll have the link uh, for our listeners, to on, on our website. Mm-hmm. Um, and the University of Pittsburgh uh, incidentally hosts a, a really interesting and, and well uh, put together website. Um, uh, um, Center for philosophy of science. Anyway, John Norton is the same John Norton that I mentioned earlier. Um, about, uh, He's the one that has the theory that thought experiments are uh, equivalent to if-then kind of sort of uh, um, deductive reasoning. Oh,
1: the one I liked. Yes, the okay. one that you liked. <laughs>
0: and uh, so Norton's website has a really interesting set of, of uh, thought experiments uh, that are listed and there are, some of them are actually shown in animated fashion and, and then they're discussed in, in depth. And the first one, uh, just to give you an example that comes out on the, on the list, is the chasing the light experiment that's Einstein's famous uh, thought mm. experiment, which Einstein's himself in um, in his uh, autobiographical notes tells tells us is what got him started on the general theory of relativity and so on and so forth. And if you look at website at Norton's website, there is an animation of how the thought experiment is supposed to work. But then what is interesting is that Einstein thought that this thought experiment clearly indicated that the the theory of ether, the idea that uh, which was dominant at the time, the idea that space was not empty but it was filled with this thing, ether.
1: Luminiferous that, ether. Yes. You have to say the full name for the cool <laughs> Luminiferous
0: effect. Luminiferous ether um, that, that fills space. Uh, Einstein found that this experiment clearly shows that theory to be wrong, but uh, Norton's uh, analysis is really interesting because it goes through three... Uh, the three reasons why Einstein thought that his thought experiment would succeed in, uh, in uh, uh, debunking the ether theory. And then he gives the ether theorist reply <laughs> to each one of those, th- those three ex- uh, objections, which actually, and the reply actually is very interesting and convincing. And then Norton goes on and say why Einstein turned out was in fact right, but not for the reason that he thought it was right. So it's, it makes for a really interesting reason. The, the website again is the John Norton Goodies at the University of Pittsburgh.
1: Wow, this is very cool. There's this, all these animations and pictures about Einstein and relativity. And apparently I'm scrolling down the page now and um, there is a, there's a, a separate section arguing that time actually exists, which is very comforting to me.
0: It might come as a shock, but yes, it turns out it does exist.
1: <laughs> all right, we're all out of time. Uh, so we're going to wrap up this episode. This concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense.
0: The Rationally Speaking Podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.